Hey everyone, this is the Everyday Leader Podcast where we hear from inspiring individuals building and leading teams across Africa. Today I speak with Doris Mujai, based in Nairobi, Kenya. Doris has over 13 years of experience in learning and development, leadership development, talent acquisition, and employability strategies across a number of companies, including Jamaira Group in Dubai, the Aga Khan University Hospital in Kenya, Career Connections, and Shortlist. She now serves, serves as the Chief Growth Officer at Yusudi, an award-winning company that trains unemployed youth in B2B sales and matches them with companies. She has a deep passion and desire to be part of preparing and leading the next generation of African leaders to navigate the future of work. Hi, Doris. Welcome to the Everyday Leader Podcast. Really excited to have you here today and dig into your wonderful career that I've been following already for the past couple of years. You've touched on a lot of different areas and you've made this interesting progression from an HR learning and development sector into a broader business capacity and really excited to chat with you about some of those topics along with your own leadership uh, development journey today. So welcome. Thank you. So thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be here. And also just for you, good job. I've been listening to a lot of the podcasts um, and I'm, I'm learning a lot. So um, it's, it's really great to be here. So happy to hear that. Thank you so much. Today, you are serving as the Chief Growth Officer at Yasudi, but I want us to step back and look earlier in your career and, and have you share an early leadership origin story. What, when was the first time that you stepped into some kind of management or, or project lead and, and what was that experience like? It's been such a long time. So my first leadership, let me start with my first leadership role. Um, I had been working at Career Connections as a consultant, managing um, projects, but not necessarily managing a team. And then I was promoted to be the lead consultant, which meant I was now managing a team of what I would call, you know, um, industrial psychologists who are providing um, leadership services to, to to businesses. That was my first, I would say, when I cut my teeth at, at, at leadership. I would say I, I look back then with a lot of nostalgia because I think that was, it's interesting, other people learn as they go, but that I think was one of my best leadership roles. And when I think about it now, it probably is because I became a leader to people I was working with already. So there was trust, there was a, a, there was a bit of trust that was built into it before I, I, I joined. So when I joined, I had a team of two. And by the time I left, I probably had a team of nine with about 40 associates. So, so part-time coaches, that, um, that, that, that was part of that. Yeah. Is there anything that was particularly difficult that you, that you faced? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think the most difficult for me was managing people who you're not leading directly. So, um, and I'll give an example of, of, of the coaches. So these were very, very senior CEOs of different organizations who are part of a coaching panel. Um, that we would ne then be able to, to provide coaching services to organizations and a lot of leadership development services. So you're managing someone who is already managing an organization. And that to me, it took a lot of practice of, first of all, not being able to say when I need them to do more, to probably moving all the way to not having the right message and EQ because I just need to get the message out. So I say it very quickly and, and hard relationships to a balance where I understood that um, they're they are here because they want to be here. They're passionate about this. And you just they just need a bit of structure and, co and communication that works across. Yeah. So that, I think, was my, the hardest thing I had to do then. And I imagine you use that experience to then become a career coach yourself. Is that right? 
Yes, um, I use that experience to become a career coach, but also that experience, people say I, 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 I can have a conversation with anybody. And it's true. If you, if you dared me to speak to anyone in this world, I would try and make sure I speak to them. But it's, it's that experience of, of learning how to not be afraid um, to speak up and speak up in this case means that people above your level, but it also, they also did teach me a lot about coaching. A lot of them are my mentors currently in, in, in my coaching journey. Yeah. That's great. So, so you essentially had some initial individual contributor roles at uh, various different companies where you were working in HR and learning development. Then you had this opportunity to be a consultant uh, in the world of, of career coaching and career development. Uh, and then, essentially uh, had an opportunity to step up and manage uh, a group of, of coaches and team members. Mm -hmm. uh, then you moved on to a shortlist, which is more on the recruitment side. Can you tell us more about uh, your experience there and how you continue to evolve your leadership journey? Yes. Oh, by the way, Chris, my first job was actually as a lifeguard and then a dive master. So that's a story for another day. Um, so I didn't start my role directly into HR. I had quite a few interesting um, journeys along the way before I got there. Um, that, that's actually a great anecdote because uh, I also <laughs> have a lot of uh, early day teenager jobs that yeah. could also be uh, fun to talk about. Uh, ice cream shop, uh, baseball umpire, <laughs> wow. uh, a lot of different uh, jobs that definitely helped uh, shape at least my per perception of uh, service-related jobs. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think maybe the journey starts even before before shortlist. The journey starts when I had led the team for five years. Um, and remember, I my first degree was in interior design, and I was leading a, a group of really switched-on um, teams who all had really really solid degrees in within the psychology space. And I just started feeling, oh, I, I need a bit more to build credibility and umph. I probably need a bit more. So I went to the UK to do my master's in uh, management psychology. Um, but coming back, there had been this urge to do more and give back more. So I come from um, my my journey into my leadership in my space was not, I didn't know anybody. I come from, my, my mother fundraised my school fees all the way up to university. So I didn't, I, I came from poverty and I always felt like a fraud each time I would have these high flying jobs and flying across different countries. I've worked in so many continents. So a big, my one year in reflection in the UK in a small cubicle, you know, just brought that to four. And coming back, I really wanted to give back a bit more by working more with organizations where I can work with probably a bit of the youth and SMEs and to try and really support that part. So that's actually the journey that led me into, um, into Shortlist. Um, I must say that the, the business leaders of Shortlist took a really, really big chance because I was coming from career connections where there were systems. It's a, it's a business that has been around for 20, 25 years, systems and processes smack into a startup where I am meant to build the systems and processes. And this was my first really clean job into a commercial space because I was now a task to reading the sales and marketing teams and nothing to do with, 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 with coaching or leadership development or even recruitment, which I was used to. This was one role that I would probably say I struggled the most because I think in, 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 in hindsight, I was learning to how to be in a startup. So first of all, I'm learning how to manage myself within a startup. And then I'm learning how to build and scale a business within that and manage teams. And at the same time, I had some sort of personal issues. Um, my mother wasn't well. And it was, it was probably as a leader, one of 
the roughest two years that I had. I think I probably hurt a lot of my team members um, in, in just how my leadership was style was at that time. But it was also the time when I worked with leaders that I consider I've worked the best with um, in my career. So it was it was both I could have done so much more, but there was, there was also so much learning that I used today um, from my, my time at, at Shortlist. Yeah. Wow. There is definitely a lot to unpack there. You, you first mentioned you spent the year up in the UK yes. uh, during your master's. Uh, mm -hmm. And that gave you the space to reflect on what you wanted to do next in your career. Mm -hmm. uh, was there a particular process that you went through? You mentioned you had this reflection and wanted to pursue something slightly different from what you had been doing for the past five years at Career Connections. What what were the types of questions and, and frameworks that you were using to make that uh, decision around your next steps? This is when I'm supposed to have this really cool framework, but I don't. I just remember that two years before that, we would do a lot of the assessment centers for graduate programs for Coca-Cola, for general the EABLs and DIGs of the world. And in the room, each time I walk into the room to assess a group of maybe 50 or 60 uh, graduates, I'd rarely see people that looked like me. And looks like me in this case is I'm looking for those kids who went to the really, really disadvantaged communities, disadvantaged schools, but they rarely made it to that to that panel. And not because there was any cheating, but just because the system was not built for them to be able to know there's even a Coca-Cola graduate recruitment program and what how to prepare um, for such a program. And sitting in my little matchbox in UK for one year, when I really, really thought about what do I want to do, what do I want to be? A lot of it, and then I had read a bit about shortlist before. A lot of it really just came back to, and um, there's something I must do more. There must be a way that I can still use my skills, my experiences, um, to do a lot more last mile interventions to get more youth into jobs and dignified ones. So I didn't have a framework, but it was a burning desire um, from my end. So it sounds like it, it gave you the opportunity to think about the problems that you want to solve, and, yes. and you came across shortlist, and that represented an opportunity to start to chip away uh, at that problem. And yes. you also mentioned that uh, you were going through some difficult personal times and that might have impacted your your leadership style and your you know, relationships with your, your team. Can you, uh, if you don't mind, share a little yes. bit more about that and, and how you uh, navigated that? Yes, I, I, it, it's not, it's personal, but not personal because I think um, it's something that it's taken me quite a long time to reflect and see where the, the, the challenges were. So as a person, as a leader, one of my personalities is when I get on that driver's seat, I don't have brakes, I don't see speed bumps, I really just drive like a crazy human. Some, there's many implications to this, some positive, most of them negative. One of them is the fact that I don't know when the fuel gauge is low. So my own fuel gauge. So I am cruising at 100. I've not even have a chance to look and say, okay, so, so because of that, I would only know that I'm out of fuel because I have either completely spoiled a relationship, I am very, very careless at work, or just things are completely up in the air. Um, and as a leader, it took about all the, if I remember all the leadership interventions for Doris sit down, what I called my come to Jesus moments, where you know I had to have tough conversations with my bosses. When I look back, they would tell me, you need to slow down. And it was always because either, because my mom um, had cancer for six years and the last, the past six years I've had to either, and I'm 
sort of the primary, I was the primary caregiver. So I'm either in India with her somewhere, she's in an ICU. And those were the moments when I was probably the worst leader, not, and all of it because I just don't know how to slow down. I'll give you, a, allow me to give you one example. I remember there was a time I took my mother for chemotherapy and then in the process, something happened and she had to be uh, rushed to ICU. At the same time, I lost um, my best friend the same day and work was really crazy. Chris, the, I used to go to hospital at five o'clock in the morning, see mom, stay with her, rush to work, completely do what I needed to do, go to my friend's um, place in the evening and repeat this every day without even thinking, what am I doing to myself? It never occurred to me that there was a way to just maybe slow down one thing and just focus on maybe what's, what's really important in personal. Um, and that had to, I almost had literally a mental complete degradation out of that and it took it takes such events it not now but then it, it would take such events for me to someone almost like a shake of slow down for me to realize oh okay i need to read i need to slow down but that has changed i must say yeah wow uh and how did you communicate that to you mentioned you had some some conversations with uh the leaders at, at shortlist that you were working with but also how did you communicate that to your own team so that they knew how to uh, engage with you? Or did they not know what you were going through? Because I know there can be, at least in my own experience, you know, some hesitancy to keep people in the loop about the personal challenges that uh, one might be going through. That's a really good question. I remember when I was joining Shortlist and they did references from my previous boss. And I remember my previous boss telling them, Doris doesn't know when to stop you need to be aware and alert to when you need, like you would have to be her gauge. She will not know when to just slow down. Um, she's working on it, but it's something you guys need to be aware of. Unfortunately, the person they'd say that to left shortlist before, and she used to really, really be conscious. I'd remember she'd take me off to have massages every time she felt like I was now cruising too high. Like she'd be very conscious about it. And, and those are, that's why I'm saying some of my best leaders came from, um, came from shortlist. Um, but with, with, with that, it just took almost literal a shake of, of, of the shoulders of you need to slow down, take a week off, don't call us, switch off your phone. We will call you when we're ready for you. We feel like you need to come back to work. Wow. And so yeah. you you ended up uh, stepping away from, from shortlist and you're now at Yasudi yes. uh, in a, a different type of role, uh, yes. chief growth officer. Uh -huh. Can you tell us more about what Yasudi does and, and what your, your role now entails? Yeah. So I took a year off, almost a year off work to slow down and learn to really just be with myself. And I think that was such an important year where I spent, I really loved it. I spent time and really dived deep into coaching and, and helping people figure out their careers better. And now I joined again. Um, at the time, I felt like I needed a bit more to get even deeper into the youth employment space and just that last mile. And Charlotte and I had been speaking for a while. And so um, with time, um, it, it just seemed like the best thing, one of the easiest decisions to make was actually to join um, to join Yusudi. Um, what does Yusudi do? I would easily call us um, a sales and development community where we just help businesses attract higher train and coach sales teams to higher performance but i think what's key and what really attracted me is the fact that we have a sales academy where we curate we train and place coach high potential graduates into b2b organizations um, as a step into their uh, into a successful sales career uh, so we focus a lot on on helping 
the youth get into sales careers because Chris, 60, 50 to 60% of, of jobs that are advertised are within sales. Um, but there's not enough, there's no training in universities on sales or, or anywhere else. There's very few professors about sales. And so people get to hate sales jobs, not because they're bad, but because their training into sales is really very pushy. And so we're trying to see how do we reframe this for the youth so that it actually becomes a rewarding, fulfilling um, career experience, if nothing else, as a rewarding and entry into, into jobs. Yeah. That's a good point. I think at my college in the U.S., I think the only sales job that you could have as a student uh -huh. was related to calling up alumni and asking them for donations, <laughs> which uh, is quite a sales kind of pitch type, yeah. of, type of job. But it's so true uh, in so many companies globally and, and also uh, in East Africa and beyond uh, need more staff who, who are good at sales. And it is a skill that uh, you need to, to learn. Um, so I'm curious, kind of, what has been the results so far with U City in terms of uh, the, the the talent that you guys have been training? Mm -hmm. So I sort of so so I'll, I'll first speak first to a point I probably didn't finish. So I manage in Sudi. So we have the Sales Academy. We have um, the Sales Development Service, which is we help we 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 actually have what we call an outsourcing sales team where we help organizations um, with the top of funneling using the youth that we've trained. And then we have a talent matching platform, which again, we help organizations um, recruit sales talent in a way that makes sense for them. And actually we have, we use, we, we inculcate coaching into, into part of that recruitment. Um, and then a learning platform where we help you sort of, a lot of, sort of scale your sales development programs um, with our trainers and also our, our platform. How you asked a question around um, how we have, how we, how we are working with the youth. So we've, trained about 2,000 um, youth so far into different roles. Uh, we pivoted, the business pivoted into sales specifically probably about a year ago, and we've trained easily maybe about 200 youth into, into that. Because I must tell you, I walked into Yusudi thinking this big dream, we're going to place a hundred, hundreds and hundreds of youth. Everyone is looking for a job. The, the, the humility and what Kenyans call, it's called, we call it character development that I've been taught, is that the, the, the rep of being a salesperson is so negative that someone would rather be without a job than consider joining sales. And so it's interesting that we have a lineup of employers waiting, you know, we have a lineup of employers wanting salespeople that we've trained but trying to get the youth to see sales as actually a career that can be dignified, it can be fulfilling, has actually been the bigger challenge. And that it's really opened my eyes to almost make me slow down and wonder, ah, okay, yes, there's, an, there's, there's a definite um, unemployment challenge, but then even then they need, we need a, type, a certain type of communication to help the youth see some positions as actually just as good. Yeah, so that, that has been very humbling for me. Well, wow, that's fascinating. So what you're seeing is that within the sales uh, sector, there is a, a supply demand mismatch yeah. kind of in the opposite direction of what you would you would think uh, in terms of the broader jobs market where there's more demand and not enough supply as opposed Absolutely. to uh, you know too many unemployed and not enough jobs to go around. Yes. That's yes. quite interesting. And it, are most of the companies that you are working with to place uh, newly trained sales development reps, are they uh, kind of behind a computer or is this like on the ground pitching to 
like pharmacies to buy new hardware and things like that? It's a mix. So about maybe 70% of our our sales, the sales development, the, the, the youth that we train would be behind the computer because I, I would say 50% of our clients are within the software as a service space. So you don't really need to leave your desk um, to do anything. But then we do have some clients that require sort of um, field sales reps. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's a good mix, but definitely more desktop. And what has this has done actually for us, which has been very exciting, especially if you look at it from the from the difference of the persons with disability, it's actually enabled us to train more people with disability because then a lot of sales positions, you don't really need to leave your desk. Um, you can work easily from home um, and, and do a lot of it vis-a-vis -vis when you have to really do a lot of the field rules that that would require, um, might, might hinder you because of one disability or the other. Yeah, so there's also that angle, which has been really exciting. Wow, that's so true. And that's kind of a, I guess, a silver lining of remote work as well, is the ability to um, train and onboard and place uh, uh, prospective employees with disabilities. Is that typically a remote role or they still also need to go into uh, an office? Um, most of them are remote roles. So we do, we have a lot of clients who might not necessarily want to go into an office and they're very, very happy with remote roles. And you're right, that has been a silver lining. The fact that it's suddenly opened these pathways um, for uh, the, uh, what we would easily consider disadvantage in a way that would not have been possible. But at the same time, to be fair, a lot of the candidates who really, really want to join the program just don't have the infrastructure. They don't have a laptop. They don't have internet um, to, to, to be able to, to access. So the, the other side is sometimes the face-to-face -face trainings um, and face-to-face and -face selling would, would probably increase the, the, the students who are joining because then they would give them, it's just about transport. But right now I'd require you to have a laptop, I'd require you to have really stable internet, which you might not um, have access to. So there's also that disadvantage, yeah. Well, now I want us to step back a little bit yeah. and uh, I'd love for you to reflect on the transition you've made over you know the past 10 years or so from being in more of an HR learning and development recruitment focused role to a broader uh, kind of business management role. You, you made that transition uh, when you moved into a country director role at Shortlist and now you are the chief growth officer at a startup. So how is that? How did you navigate that journey? Because uh, it's not often that someone from HR uh, move or training moves into kind of a, a general management role. Uh, so how did you do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And yes, it's not often. I literally know all HR people who have moved into the commercial space. I keep saying I should have, we should we should, we should have like a panel for them to just discuss how they have. I, I follow everybody who tries that path because it's not easy. I think for me, what made it easy was the role at Career Connections sort of was part talent development, part commercial, because I was leading the commercial aspects of the business at the same time by bringing in new business, at the same time um, managing talent. Um, so my role at Aga Khan was purely HR and then moving into Career Connections and five years of that helped. So by the time I moved into Shortlist, I had a bit of the commercial aspect, but I definitely did not have the scaling up um, and just really, really thinking about growth type of, 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 of HR skills. That was hard, I must say. I think nowadays when I recruit um, sales leaders for organizations, I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't underestimate what it takes to move from an EABL into this a startup. I, I think we don't place enough importance into the coaching that would be required for that person to succeed. 
And I think definitely that's something there. But from a HR perspective, I have, right now I ask myself, how much HR practice do I use every day in leading the teams and how much business do I use? And I would say what I lean on a lot now is making sure that we are a learning organization, making sure that, because I, I believe in the principles of, 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 of learning. I believe in the fact that if you do allow people to learn, allow people to really understand what it takes to learn. Um, that's, I think, for me, the biggest principle about the HR that I've carried. I'll give you an example. Is anyone we, pro we promote um, within USUDI go through a three-month manager in training phase where we make sure that we've put in systems and processes, probably even possibly find you a mentor. If you need a coach, you would probably get one before we actually confirm you. And if you don't do well, if for one, one, one reason or another, we are really happy to take you back into your role or find you other roles within the organization. And I don't think enough people just put enough thought into what it takes to move from an individual contributor to a manager. And we are trying to, to, to change that. That's probably one I would say I've carried with me, yeah. Wow, uh, such great insight. Could you tell us a bit more about what you're doing day to day in this new role, like the the people and teams that you oversee? And then yeah. what are a few um, interesting kind of team leadership strategies that uh, you've been practicing that really uh, you feel that are, is working well? Um, so I manage the Sales Academy, which is a team of about eight to nine people who work on admitting, training, and coaching um, the sales team. So how we do it is we have uh, we have a, a team whose work is just to get as many youth graduates into the program as possible. And then we have a team who train them for the two months that, I, that they're in training. And then we have a team who now coaches them in the six-month placement that they're in. So that's 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 one whole team. And then I manage the, the, the talent, um, the, the recruitment, which is, again, a team of about four or five people who, whose day and night is one to build a sales community. Where we What we do is a bit different than anybody else. So we actually proactively reach out to sales leaders and sales talent interview them find out what their interests are and have them ready within our platform instead of where we have a job advert and we try and draw that in what makes it easy then for for the team then is whenever they have any roles it's easy to actually just look within we've already have interviews we have recorded sessions and you can easily try and match people to to different to different places and then now we so those are the two teams that i manage from from a product from a project and product perspective and then i also manage a sales team um which has been amazing for me i joined i've not been there for long i've been there for four months i i think it's such i have i have three ladies who who are about maybe nine months into the business and they all came from the sales academy to join our sales team and they are just amazing i use them each time as an example to employers of this is what we produce this girl is nine months and she's able to have this conversation with you because they are such a good picture and of, of what we actually of the sale what the sales academy can do and then i have the marketing team um a team of two people who manage all our content um and, and just help us with, with building the brand and, and performance within marketing yeah so that's yeah so it's, it's definitely a big team it's it's a, it's it's a busy period for me but very exciting it's really great to hear that uh you're you know eating your own dog food yes. so to say <laughs> that uh you're seeing really your the own you're you're benefiting from your own product. Can you tell me more about that? I mean, it, there's not that many companies who are able to so successfully use their own product to actually push their business forward. Um, what what has been uh, surprising about that? I, I imagine it doesn't always work out that way. But can you talk a bit more about that? 
Yes, and as I said, I, I, and, and I know I'll probably be killed by the team for saying this, but I was just as surprised as you are. It's one thing to, you know, be able to say, this is what we do, this is what we're passionate about, this is the solution, that we, the problem we're trying to solve. But it's another to actually say the reason why um, Maria, who has been doing this presentation with you for the last hour, is actually when someone says, oh, but are they worth it? Do I have to train them too much? I don't want to take two years to train the person. I don't have time. And I just say, Maria, do you want to give an example of, you know, just pick a bit about yourself? And they would say, yeah, I've been here for, this is my seventh month in Yusudi. And because they've been engaging Maria prior to this meeting, it doesn't actually take much. And that's the value. I believe our program is really solid. It's robust. There's a lot of learning. You actually have to sell before you, you graduate. I don't know how many people are able to, as your first job, but you're coached for six months um, after, 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 you know, before you actually get sort of fully confirmed into a role. So it's really, really robust. Um, and that's why I can see the fruits of it, definitely. Yeah. That's great. I was also meaning to ask, you had mentioned uh, you had spent the year up in the UK doing your master's in management psychology, and that had given you the space to reflect on your next steps. But I'm also curious on the types of theories, management theories and, and concepts that uh, you've actually been able to apply uh, still today in your role. Oh, um, a lot of myths were busted <laughs> into, I am, I, first of all, I'm more critical of what I produce as this is the solution. If you do this personality assessment, your life will be solid because I was humbled by just, um, I was taught to be more critical about anything that goes out. So I'm definitely more critical as a person into any science about talent um, that comes out. Um, when when I see someone saying my coaching is ROI 200, I start, I just start thinking, no, no. No, there's no ROI for 200% um, in coaching. So that critical thinking and just helping me really see things from that perspective has really, really um, has, has, has been, I think, for me, what was the biggest learning out of, my, out of my course. In terms of theories, and I remember we spent it at this, I was taught, I used to train in one of my, my first entry into HR was as a training coordinator in Dubai. And I used to train managers on, motivational theories and it it just it was nice to show them this is what motivates people but within my masters i actually went deep into what actually that means and i think i spent about three months and my project was around that aspect my my first my my first um my first semester project what i took away from that a lot is really job design and and even right now to sudi um, i think people are motivated especially the current generation if you allow them to design their own jobs i work best with teams who are able to say doris this is what i want to do help me figure this out and i think also it speaks a lot to my principles as a career coach where i think people should drive their careers so ability for you to design your job in a way that makes it interesting and motivating for you um, was as a leader that one of the biggest takeaways yeah and how that actually can increase motivation by, by tenfold. So that concept of, I've heard it called job crafting. Yes. Is that something you picked up um, in your master's program or just on the job? I picked it up in my master's program by actually, so I spent a lot of time reading about it. And then now when I came back, it just became automatic for me to think, um, when someone says I'm not happy, I'm like, what would make you happy? How do you design this to actually fit into um, your career goals and aspirations? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's also yeah. a, a key benefit of working at a workplace. You know, usually it's startups, but it, it's also common in other larger companies where there is that flexibility. It doesn't have to just be 
the job description uh, that's officially approved by HR, there is flexibility to identify, you know, stretch projects as they might be called that help align someone's personal and professional interests and ambitions with what the organization and the team needs, where you can uh, kind of almost compromise to find something that is going to help both achieve, achieve success. Yeah. And I have like team members who, because we don't, in Yusudi, we only work until Friday, one o'clock. And part of Friday afternoon is for you to think through and do a lot of learning. But also a big part of what I've asked the teams to do is anybody who is curious about another department and might think they want to move there, use Fridays. A lot, like ask me that Doris I don't work on Friday in this I want to actually spend that time in another department learning something about them because that will eventually increase motivation more than if you just say no no find your own time figure it out allowing them the space and agreeing that these are the times that you know you have the time to, to work within other places and explore and see whether that's something you do I am a big believer again as a coach in pilot projects, um, designing your career in a way that you're doing enough pilot projects to help you figure out if that's actually something you want to do instead of diving deep and regretting it within a few months, yeah. Amazing. Um, just as we as we wrap up, you had mentioned earlier that something you've consistently uh, struggled with is knowing when to slow down. Um, is that still your biggest challenge or are there other key challenges that you now face uh, as a leader that's you know uh, more on the commercial side? I have learned how to slow down. I'm really, really proud of myself. It took a lot up to and including therapy, to be honest, um, to slow down. Um, I remember my therapist calling me a human doer instead of a human being. Um, so in, in, in the sense <laughs> that I just do, like if a friend is struggling, I would say, what can I do? And not how can I be? And so that, that I must say, I now know I am. I don't drive fast enough. I have slowed down. And every time I feel like I am going through speed bumps, I have mechanisms to slow me down. And so that's really not an issue for me at the moment. I think my biggest issue right now is to bring people along in a way, especially teams that you found in a place. How do you help them uh, without <laughs> at the risk of using the word fast? Learn how to trust you and you trust them enough that when you say, I think this is where I think I, I can sense that this is the general direction we need to go, um, there's just enough trust for you to start the journey with them. So learning how to bring people along at, I don't want to say at their pace, but at the pace that is reasonable for yourself, themselves and the business is what um, I'm really learning at the moment. Yeah. What's an example of how how that plays out and, and uh, how you with the strategies that you're using to bring people along with you? I'll, I'll, I'll give an example of how we are trying to get more graduates into our programs. And so I probably look at, and we have a lot of marketing strategies around that. So I'm the type of person who tries something for a month and then I, I can take very big bets. I can say, oh, let's try and go to universities. I'm going to speak because again, remember I have no fear of speaking to anybody. I'm going to speak to one, two, three, four, five chancellors and see what they think. And what, so I can see where that will take me, but sometimes um, my ability not to help other people see that and work with me until they are for them to actually help. So when I go back and say, I need you to design one, two, three, four to help me, you know, meet that goal. If it's not done, I have learned to ask myself, did I communicate that better? Was there a different way to do that? And a lot of it is because the person hasn't done it because they're probably afraid, not because they don't want to do what you're saying. So 
slowing back a bit, slowing down for me and understanding, okay, so why, what has happened here to someone who's really solid, they do their work well, but this particular thing seems to not being done the way I would expect them to. And knowing that ah, it's probably because I've moved a bit fast and I didn't spend time bringing them along with me. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you, Doris, so much for sharing your, your journey and, and the insights that you've had as you've moved from, from HR, L&D, your career coaching, and now you're helping grow this really um, impactful uh, B2B sales uh, company. Uh, maybe I'll be a future customer. It sounds quite interesting. So, yes, please. Uh, I appreciate your right time today. Is. Yeah, well, I'll be in touch. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to continuing to follow you on your journey. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for having me. It's really been great. Um, a lot of reflect reflection on this and this podcast for me. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a great day. All Bye. right. You too. Bye.